Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Steve Kurz, welcome back to Real Vision. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here again. You know, it's really a pleasure to have you. We should say uh, you were on Real Vision uh, on a video interview uh, last month, I believe, and it was such a great conversation that I wanted to invite you back to be our very first inaugural guest for the rebranded Building Blocks podcast, where we talk about people's journeys in the space of crypto and find out a little bit more uh, about what drove them and what interests them most right now. So with that said, Steve, tell us a little bit about your journey into the digital asset crypto space. Yeah, of course. And th thanks for having me back. I'm honored to be the first guest in the new rebranding and, and hope I live up to it. Um, you know, my journey uh, in a way started in 2008 um, when I was a fixed income analyst at uh, Lehman Brothers and, um, you know, partly seeing what happened at Lehman Brothers and part, partly Mike uh, Novogratz uh, pulling me to Fortress in September of 2008 um, was was what started my long journey to crypto. Um, seeing what could go wrong was part of it. Uh, and then being connected to a guy like Mike, who uh, was a very early adopter uh, in crypto and, and in Bitcoin specifically uh, back in 2012, um, was, was what uh, first introduced me. And uh, I think really it got serious in 2017 um, when, I, when I started to go down the proverbial rabbit hole, uh, of course, on Bitcoin yeah. first. And and then on Ethereum and and I think you know many people in the crypto space will say this, but once you see some of these concepts, you can't unsee them. And right. um, I had my own personal uh, journey that led me to that moment, but it hit at the right time, and I, I just decided I had to dedicate my my life uh, to this, and uh, I have not looked back since. So that phrase Lehman Brothers 2008 <laughs> is a catchphrase for ground zero in the middle of the global financial crisis. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Well, it didn't help that I'm I'm literally the guy wearing the uh you know my my bag walking out the door on on all the CNN clips. So you know my my grandma was was stressed out about it. Um but but luckily I had a job on the other side. Um look, I was 23 at the time. Um and what was we I think very strange to me was that I had turned down, you know, a lot of other interviews that great companies, McKinsey and Goldman, because I was going to work at Lehman Brothers. You know, they had this, at that time, they had this sort of uh, ethos around them. And I was on the bond desk and it was a bond shop and, yeah. you know, really going to go get trained uh, and, and and learn about spread product and, and just all of these things, the culture. I mean, really, it seemed uh, like everything was lined up and it was so... Um, it was so surprising. Uh, it wasn't even jarring. I think what was most interesting to me was seeing how the people around me, um, you know, there were heroes, there were villains uh, in the midst of all the chaos and um, really starting to understand um, that everything is not as it seems at a very early age, I think right. helped me start to be more open-minded to some of the concepts of crypto. Uh, but it was it was definitely not what I expected when I signed up out of Cornell in 2007. 
Yeah, I bet. And for those who don't know, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, to a certain extent, had this reputation of being the trader's shops, the places you wanted to go when you were really a hardcore uh, guy or gal who wanted to be on a trading desk actually making markets and uh, doing cool stuff. Banks at the time were allowed to do proprietary trading. This is pre-Volcker rule. Uh, so this was really the place to be uh, at Lehman Brothers if you were someone who was passionate about trading, especially on the bond side, fixed income side. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, yeah, and a lot of people, certainly the young folks on our team, and uh, I don't think uh, they have that history, but it, it really, I mean, there's there's this diaspora even today of, of Lehmanites who... Uh, who were trained that way, and you know, I, I think what was what was interesting is that um, you know it didn't have to it didn't have to go that way as you as you reflect right. on it and learn more about it, and it just sort of uh, this collective decision making uh, process, the government uh, and and bank interplay, uh, you know, debt and leverage, all these concepts were very new to me, obviously at the time, right. and uh, they come up and rear their heads in, in crypto in many interesting ways. Yeah, and you know, in many ways, that's the perfect setup for my next question, which is, what did you learn uh, about capital markets, about financial markets? That was the foundation uh, before you even discovered crypto. What were your takeaways uh, about the way the financial system works? It's a great question. Uh, you know, first, I guess I come back to everything is not as it as it seems. Um, right. You know, what, what's what's fascinating to me is that um, it's not like there were. Uh, people who didn't see some of the problems, um, both within Lehman Brothers, across other banks uh, on the street, in the government, um, and on some level, probably intuitively, people who bought houses they shouldn't have. Everyone knew that this wasn't supposed to be happening this way, but they were doing it anyway. And so this you kind of go back to this Econ 101 principle, people respond to incentives. Uh, and that's a very micro concept. And when you when you put it together and you know you building block that out, uh, that's how you end up with with leverage and your year in bonus and you know all of these all of these forces that are um uh, you know, not necessarily for the collective good when you put them together, uh, over many years ends in a catastrophe. Um, you know, and, and I think, uh, as, as I've reflected on it, you know, we haven't really rationalized many of those problems. The banks have gotten bigger. The, the moral hazard problem is even bigger. Um, you know, leverage is still a fundamental part of our financial services ecosystem. Now it's, it's been put within bands and that, that's, that's been very constructive. Uh, but I'm, I, I wonder how much, We've learned number one uh, on the debt side, and um, you know I, I think the other thing that it did that I learned a lot was from my peers. It's it's less about you know the people that have already made their money, right? Two thousand two to two thousand seven were very heady years for many people on Wall Street. Um, those in my analyst class, you know, who were really excellent. I remember looking around the auditorium and saying, "How am I here?" There's a gymnast, you know, from the Olympics, and and uh, you know top tier guys at MIT. Um, a handful of them made it through that and stayed in the financial services industry. It was a really traumatic time for people who hadn't yet developed a skill set and a footing. And I think that that is not just in the financial services industry. That's an entire sort of generation coming out of college for five or 10 years, um, sort of reeling from what all the promises that they were told about, you know, if you go to school and do these things, you'll be able to make um, yeah. this money or you'll be able to learn these skills. And so I, I yeah. think, I think that, um, that expectations gap, uh, both around capital markets, but also around, uh, you know, how do you go to work and, and feel good about yourself for this generation or, or what I took away the most. Yeah. So when did you first hear about Bitcoin? Oh, man, I, you know, this, I, I probably shouldn't, <laughs> I haven't told this one publicly, but in 2013, I was working at a credit, uh, a credit hedge fund that was actually founded by some, some Lehman, uh, folks, um, who were on the credit side. And, uh, one of the research analysts, Brought up Bitcoin. I think the price was 
$300 or something. And he, uh, you know, this was the guy who was always buying wine to try to sell it in a year. And there's always one guy like that. And uh, he's like, you should buy this, this Bitcoin. Um, and I looked at it and sort of, you know, are there any cash flows? No, <laughs> you know, uh, what does it do? Okay, Silk Road. And, and I, I sort of laughed at it and I didn't engage with it. It's a very expensive mistake. Um, and I forgot about it until, until 2017. And, uh, you know, then Mike Novogratz called me and, and, and we had a very different discussion and I engaged on a deeper level. So I, I'd say the first time I engaged with Bitcoin, I reflexively threw it in the trash bin like many people do. And then I came back to it and, yep. and realized that that was a, that was a mistake. Yeah, you know, I had actually a very similar story to that. I had a, a, a friend who was working uh, at Goldman as a as a coder, balancing out their uh, weekly collateral positions, and he called me up and said, "I need to talk to you about Bitcoin." And uh, you know, he spent about forty five minutes explaining it, and I said, "You know, listen, you're obviously a brilliant tech guy, but let me explain to you, Alex, <laughs> all of the reasons why this is just a silly idea." You'll see, uh, you'll, you'll get it one day. You know, you're. <laughs> Exactly. And he was kind of like, well, not really a whole lot I can do to help you, man. Yeah. But you know, it is so interesting how many of us, particularly people who came from the financial services side, saw Bitcoin, saw it relatively early because we were in the space and there were people who got it early and just dismissed it out of hand. It's true. And, and you know, the only, uh, you know, if you think like a financial services person, some of the consolation is probably that most of those guys who owned it at 300 sold it at 1,000 because they thought they were smart. So it's not like, right. it's not like they held it to 40,000 right. so you could feel better about, I, I'm joking, of course. <laughs> but it, it is, uh, it, yeah, it's very interesting. And we see that psychology actually play out um, all the time in our business. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's pretty human, right? You see something that is different and you reflexively, you know, find reasons for it to not make sense. And one of my biggest lessons in crypto, and this really came from Mike as well, um, our founder was, you know, stop thinking about what, you know, what doesn't work and start imagining what if it works? What if the promise of blockchain systems and decentralized robust technology is a better infrastructure for the payment rails? Then what? Yeah. And if you flip that, um, I think, you know, you can still be critical. You don't have to be a zealot about everything in the space, but it gives you a different lens um, that's not so defensive um, and that allows you to engage with um, with the space more constructively. Yeah. So tell us about Mike. Mike, of course, is Mike Novogratz, uh, the founder of Your Shop, and one of the very early people. Uh, I consider him one of the sort of like Gen Zero uh, folks on the hedge fund side who saw this yeah. as a potential macro asset class. Tell us about your relationship with Mike, the conversation, and how you wound up joining him. Yeah, of course. Look, my, Mike, um, I spent five years at Fortress working with Mike, and uh, I'll spare the audience the uh, the uh, attire he was wearing when I first saw him, but it was very bright. And I said, this is Wait, not- what was he wearing? Yeah, he was- Come he was, on, okay, you can't do that. Guy. What was he wearing? He, he, he was wearing, so this is when I interviewed at Fortress <laughs> from Lehman Brothers. He was wearing white pants <laughs> and uh, gold shoes and a paisley shirt. And I thought, this is not Lehman Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that that was I'm the first I'm not at Lehman anymore. I'm not at Lehman anymore uh for for many reasons but so big personality I, I'm teasing of course um and and has always been great at um synthesizing disparate information right. down to a clear not only framework but but core thesis and then once having that thesis not holding rigidly to that thesis but sort of following the, the contours of that framework and honing that thesis into uh, into action and risk taking i think it's very rare that you have someone who can do all of those things um and so what I learned over the years- So what year is this, by the way, that you first start having this conversation? Well, we, we talked all the time from 2008 to 2012 when I worked at Fortress uh, in New York and in, in Singapore and, and had a number of you know investor meetings. And, and I sat in with the research teams and um, you know he had built a really uh, 
strong team at at Fortress and the Macro uh, Fund with uh, you know Brazil specialists and rate specialists, and um, that was a fascinating time to just really learn what the whole macro thing was all about. I, I got some of it uh, at Lehman Brothers, but this was a significantly broader lens. Uh, you know, I was at ten thousand feet. This was at a million feet, um, and and I was you know, both impressed and and a little intimidated by the scope of some of that thinking. I, I think that also really helps open your mind to crypto, by the way, to, to be able to zoom out that way. Um, yeah. And what, what I learned from, from Mike was, um, you know, not only this optimism that I just alluded to, um, but also uh, sort of a relentless curiosity for what's next. <laughs> You know what's next generationally? What's what's next globally? What's next from an asset class or a trade perspective? And just this forward motion, um, you know, never looking back. Uh, and, and I think that's a really healthy way to live, both yeah. personally and professionally. And um, so that was that was my first five years. And then obviously in 2017, uh, he circled back to to recruit me to help start Galaxy. And that's when we talked about crypto for the first time. Yeah, you know, Ralph Powell, our, our founder and CEO, always says that if you're in the macro space, you have to be able to live in the future. That's the essential characteristic right. of what macro thinkers must do. And I think Mike and Ralph and some of the others who were very early to the party were able to live in the future and understand what the potential of these digital assets were. Yeah, that's that's right. And it, it wasn't um, what was interesting about that point is that it wasn't the case that he or or Raul or anyone could tell you with great specificity. This is exactly how this is going to play out. This is exactly which industry or sub-industry will be disrupted. And, and, and that was really difficult four years ago. I mean, yeah. everyone sort of said, why does this need to exist over and over and over again? Right. And the lens of, well, this is what's wrong with the, the system as a starting point. This is why it is global and generational. And, and I believe in the creative energy of, you know, millions of really smart people figuring out how to fix problems. That was enough. Right of right. a thesis, and then we'll follow that path as well. So it's sort of a great uh, micro expression of of that framework that I that I alluded to um, that I first yeah. saw back at Fortress. Yeah, it's also interesting because the the great ones, Mike and others, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty and indeterminacy and a and a shifting sort of sands of the framework yeah. while still being able to hold on to the core thesis. And that is also an incredibly tricky thing to do. Yeah, it's hard, and and it's you know there's probabilistic thinking is hard, and 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 uh, you know liquid risk is hard, and and crypto is hyper liquid. So even just uh, things like staying in the trade in a crypto context are very difficult to uh, to sort of wrap your head around. It's, it's why it's hard to manage a crypto hedge fund. Um, you know, hedge funds are not meant to be uh, sort of outright long 80 vol assets as a core underlying thesis to the investment strategy. And so it's uh, it's been very interesting. By the way, explain that, uh, being outright long uh, 80 vol assets for people uh, who do not have traditional finance background. Yeah, sure. Look, it, it just me a hedge fund is supposed to uh, go long and short and pr uh, create alpha, basically uh, extract value from the markets that uh, is idiosyncratic and uncorrelated. And um, one of the reasons we didn't launch a hedge fund at Galaxy is because the last four years have not been, in our view, about extracting that much liquid alpha. It's been about this big beta trade. And when we say beta, we just mean right. more people are coming into the space, the market cap is going higher, right. and uh, maybe in the future, there will be a way to optimize and trade around. But but really, for the last few years, it's been about being long the space. So when we say outright long, owning Bitcoin as a core thesis, owning Ethereum as a core thesis, and living through crypto winner, you know, down 80, down 90%. Um, that's really difficult to do. Um, because if it's your livelihood, or if it's in, you know, your balance sheet, and it's just gone down, how do you plan for your business? How do you pay your people? How do you think about the future and get up every day on the front foot is a really interesting and difficult question. 
But it is such an interesting distinction, this idea of uh, liquid alpha versus the notion that, you know, you're in an environment now where all of the boats are rising simultaneously. Maybe we should get t-shirts printed up that say, <laughs> I'm just here for the beta. Oh, man. Well, maybe those t-shirts, uh, to, to, to self-correct a little bit, I, th I think those t-shirts were were very relevant in early 2020. I do think we're going into a new phase now. I think... Um, you know, both the so we missed the t-shirt window. I think the t-shirts can be made, but we have to say they're retro t-shirts. You can't say they're new t-shirts. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll do it with like a seventies font. hundred percent. Perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll get you one. Uh, <laughs> get the marketing team on it. Um, but but no, it's a different phase now, right? We 2021 was all about the uh, horizontal expansion of this asset class beyond just one or two use cases. Um, so that was a market cap growth. That was a use case growth. Um, the network was proven to be composable, so these things started to work together. Together. By the way, I, composability is such a key concept yeah. in this space. How do you understand composability? Well, uh, I, I understand it more simply than my computer science colleagues. Uh, I, I think of it as um, it's not quite puzzle pieces because I think that that's not. It's sort of like three dimensional puzzle pieces hmm. and and maybe maybe dynamic three dimensional puzzle pieces. So these these different pieces of the crypto ecosystem, whether it's the Ethereum base layer or whether it's um, you know a, a layer that sits on top of that just for transactions that's connected via smart contracts, you can modularly put these things together. You don't need Ethereum to do uh, everything for every use case, and you don't need every use case uh, to have its own base layer. You can start to piece these things together and they all work and they all speak the same language. So this interoperability and this sort of modular uh, uh, composition of uh, different e pieces of the equation. And when I say equation, I mean sort of the future, the future of the internet, the future of the financial system. When you put those things together that way, it's impossible not to get excited yeah. because, because that just means you're going to have nonlinear change to the upside uh, at, at an increasing rate. We're not going to slow down from here. We're going to keep being composable. We're going to keep putting puzzle pieces together. Yeah, this, this is fascinating because it's this interesting sort of union of where computer science meets financial services. One of the phrases that we often hear describing this is money Legos, the idea that you can basically kind of snap these different layers together. The more technical term is API, application programming interface, which is how computer scientists think about the interfaces between those systems. I guess maybe one of the most interesting things to point out about this sort of money Lego view of what digital assets are doing uh, is how this clearly was not present during the 2007-2008 vintage, where nobody knew what their counterparties were holding. You couldn't assess risk because the systems didn't talk to each it, other. It's, it's such a good... I almost mentioned it earlier. It's such a good point. Um, one of the things that really, um, you know, bothered me about the past and doesn't bother me about crypto, it makes me excited, is this this transparency, um, this 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 connectivity alongside that transparency. In a world where DeFi becomes a much bigger piece of the puzzle, DeFi will be you right. will be able to do credit analysis on chain. Now we're not there. It's it's a sandbox right now. I, I'm not going to defend every piece of that ecosystem, but the foundations for DeFi will allow that to happen, and in theory, should prevent, um, if not the financial crisis, they should at least allow you as an operator in that financial services ecosystem to have tools to be able to do the work and figure out transparently what is going on on the other side of your transaction and how much risk are you taking from a counterparty perspective. Uh, and, and as you say, that just wasn't possible uh, in the global financial crisis. Yeah. 
talk to us a little bit about where you think DeFi is right now. I've joked in the past that the three most important things to know about DeFi is number one, it's early. Number two, it's early. And number three, it's still early. Give us yeah. your sense. But the potential simultaneously, obviously, as we have this conversation, we talk about the power of this technology is immense. How do you think about what the current state of play is in the DeFi ecosystem? Well, it's 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 a complicated question, but I, I and I think um, you know, like so many things in crypto, you have a we had DeFi summer two years ago, and so what that <laughs> what that meant is you know there were some lending protocols, and everyone got excited, and the market cap of the coins went up, and that brought talent, and you know uh, that 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 fervor um, be, made DeFi become you know what it is today, and this 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 idea that we can do a better job decentralized uh, uh, against our financial system than than um, centralized, but. What what you need to have a truly parallel financial services system in a decentralized context is significantly more than DeFi summer. And so I, I think um obviously regulatory comes to mind first. Uh I think that when you um compare the problems of DeFi scaling to the problems of Ethereum or Bitcoin scaling, they're more complex. Um you 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 need to think about right. consumer protection in a very serious way. Um you need to have a a uh, regulatory framework that's informed ideally by legislation uh, around this. And that's anathema to some uh, DeFi lovers in the crypto space. But but truly, you want the financial services ecosystem to include uh, both retail and institutions and crypto geeks. And so you do need to engage with that. You can't put your head in the sand. Um, one, of the, one of the problems that I have with the current um, debate around DeFi is that you have certain senators, for instance, who are very anti the big banks because of all that we just talked about from 2007 and 2008, right? Uh, and and the uh, the fees that get paid on transactions and ATM fees, but also hates DeFi. And I'm saying, hey, wait a minute, yeah. this is a potential uh, answer to the solution. DeFi can take out the middleman by creating a more uh, uh, streamlined system and by allowing everyone to participate fractionally. And and why don't we flip that script a little bit and and maybe not. Just just open the floodgates, but have, a, again, a regulatory sandbox that allows us to grow, allows for key components like AML KYC uh, happening on-chain to be developed uh, instead of just stifling that out of the gates when it has such massive potential. Yeah, extremely well said. Steve, you know, one of the things that's interesting about you is that you have this 50,000-foot view of this space. Obviously, there are a lot of moving parts, uh, DeFi, Web3, NFTs, uh, securities tokens. I mean, there's just so many different almost silos in the space of folks who don't maybe necessarily talk to each other a whole lot. But you have this very comprehensive view from your chair. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. Yeah. Look, I run I run the asset management business here at, at Galaxy, and and we um, fortunately for me, having that view helps because we're trying to build the world's first institutional asset management platform in crypto, uh, and so that means everything from passive single asset like a Bitcoin fund all the way through to venture funds, fund of funds, liquid active funds, and everything in between that spans the entire uh, scope of the space. So we we have to be. Uh, by by virtue of that mandate, we have to be broad in our thinking about the space. And we've made a bet that this is an asset class, not an asset. And it's it's really more than that. It's actually right. a, a technology that's foundational. Um and so I spend my my time uh, you know, talking to partners, uh, engaging with large institutional investors, thinking about new products, uh, hiring an institutional team. Uh, we just brought on a COO for our business from Blackstone. That's a great example of, you know, we couldn't have done that two years ago, not right. just Galaxy, but it really wasn't the kind of profile that was willing to come into the space. Those are the things that get me 
excited about my job because on a three, four, five year basis, that's how you go from two and a half billion in AUM to 30 billion in AUM. And that's how you really build a, a, a diversified business. So that's, that's what I'm mostly focused on. So as you think about growing that AUM, what are the functional buckets? You know, one of the interesting things that I find about this space is no two taxonomies are the same. People look at these assets very differently. What are your categories yeah. at the high level and how do you think about it? Well, there, it's and it's even more complicated. There's there's fund structure, and then there's there's buckets of underlying exposure. And and the reason I say that is nothing nothing in crypto over the last four years has been easy. It really hasn't. There's there's no ETFs in the U.S., but you can do ETFs in Canada. There are exchange traded products in in Switzerland. Um, there's trust structures in the U.S. There's private fund structures. There, you know, it's just right. so many different wrappers. The concept of liquidity in crypto is kind of funny. So even if you have a venture fund, you can sell, which mm -hmm. is different than traditional venture. And really, just starting with that spectrum of of where do you live on the liquidity and structuring side, which is not again not the sexy stuff, but that's really important if yeah. you're an institutional asset manager, and then marrying that to those functional buckets. Um, the way I would answer the functional buckets, there are really three things that most institutions, whether they're wealth or allocators, are most focused on today as they think about making their first uh, allocation to crypto. It's regulatory, it's volatility, and it's diversity. Hmm. So when you look at those three principles, uh, we try to incorporate those into every product that we build. So when we built a DeFi index fund last summer, uh, we wanted to make sure that from a regulatory perspective, we weren't putting securities into those funds because that would cause a problem for us and for our investors. So we created rules around that. We built docs around that to be thoughtful a certain way. And that makes investors comfortable that they're not going to have that problem in the fund. Um, diversification. We made sure that there were more than a handful of coins because the index methodology was developed with Bloomberg to be diverse. Uh, and so, you know, every time you think about um, that in a different vertical, you have different versions of that same discussion. We're launching a venture uh, fund of funds right now. Um, that certainly incorporates diversification and, and vol reduction because it's a longer liquid structure. So I think, uh, you know, the the average investor <clears throat> doesn't want to pick a coin. Right. The average investor doesn't want to throw a dart at the board on the internet. They want to have someone help them do that. Uh, and I think um, for the most part, they want the whole menu. They want NFTs. They want exposure to Web3. They want exposure to um, uh, uh, the infrastructure, right? The financial services and payments infrastructure. Uh, and they want exposure to digital gold and Bitcoin. So it's, you know, it's 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 a lot, um, but we try to package it thoughtfully and size positions uh, appropriately relative to where each of those stories are at a moment in time. Yeah. I'm curious about the earlier point that you brought up, which is the notion of fund structure. Tell us a little bit about where we are in the United States right now uh, in terms of uh, the ability to, to do business as a traditional asset manager. Well, it's it's limited. Um, we we have, as an example, we've not uh, utilized a trust structure like many of our peers have. We felt uh, that would be a negative for clients, uh, as things like a premium can go to a discount, and right. you know your clients might end up trailing Bitcoin performance by a very substantial margin. As a fiduciary, we don't we don't love that structure because you know you lose control of your ability to track the underlying asset, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or other coins. So we've kind of done it the hard way. We we've built our our funds mostly in private structures, which have a lot of friction to them. But the advantage is they track the coin movement very, uh, very specifically. Right. And we've sort of committed to doing that until there's an ETF. And, you know, we we are partnered with Invesco and we're, we're focused on uh, that discussion um, in, in the US. It's, it's, it's a, you know, a marathon, not a sprint. Um, 
we didn't launch a futures ETF because we thought that, you know, the role and, and the tracking error and some of the inherent risk in those products could again hurt the underlying investors. So I think what, what we have to do is be patient, uh, because we've taken that institutional route and really work with, with our partners at Invesco, work with the regulators, work with the service providers that are part of what we believe will be, you know, a really great ETF product in the future and just move the ball forward step by step, um, which, you know, hasn't happened as quickly as we'd like, but right. uh, we think it will happen. So the thinking is one, that an ETF is forthcoming and two, uh, that when it does come, it's going to really change the nature of retail investment in this space. Well, it's it's coming. I don't know that it's coming in the next few months. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take a while for, for a variety of reasons, but we certainly know what it will do. Um, we see that in Canada. So we, we do have a partnership in Canada um, with CI Financial Group, and we have three ETFs with them. And if you compare uh, the products that are live with the market now versus two or three years ago in the Canadian market, the fees are lower. Uh, it's more liquid. These are more institutional products. They have redemptions and liquidity. Those are great things for investors. So our, our point to uh, regulators and, and really anyone is uh, the ETF structure is a good thing. It, it's it's significantly better than what people are already using to access the space inefficiently. So let's just rip the Band-Aid off and work on, on that because I think everyone agrees when you have 40 million Americans that have engaged with crypto, the cat's out of the bag. You know, Let's do the right thing and give people the right structures to access some of this. Yeah. You know, shifting gears here a little bit to do what we were talking about earlier, which is the idea of living in the future. When you think about this space and you try and project yourself forward, say three to five years over an intermediate term time horizon, what do you think this world looks like and what would you like to be doing in it? <laughs> well, there's a, there's an irony to this. Uh, you know, it's many of the most crypto uh, native folks out there would look at Galaxy and say, "You're not a crypto company. You're a, you're a centralized company. You you look like a Goldman Sachs or a, a Blackstone." And and on some level, that that's true, um, even though we're crypto native and and we operate in the crypto space. So there, there's a possibility where if if we help the world uh, come to crypto, we might just work ourselves out of a job at some point. Um, <laughs> I'm being a little cheeky about it, but I think, you know, to answer your question directly, I'm really passionate about over the medium to long term, how do we start to move uh, indexing on chain and biz, uh, fund management on chain and, uh, you know, do, do this in a decentralized way, um, but also in a regulated and institutional way. And I think right. that's going to be a, you know, that's going to be a journey. So that, that's where I think we, we fit. Uh, from a financial services perspective, I very much believe on the other side that the identity and social media and and Web3 and metaverse themes are also real. So mm -hmm. I can comment on that, but that's a little different than sort of the, the, financial, the core financial services side, at least. I don't see you guys ever working yourself out of a job. I think it just becomes like the galaxy path. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think we've, trust me, we've, 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 we've explored all of this. We've thought about all of it. Uh, Nova would be a great uh, Galaxy DAO leader. I'm sure a lot of people would want to be a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about what we were just talking about uh, on the metaverse NFT side, how you see that space changing. Well, this was one of the big stories of maybe the, probably the big story of 2021. Uh, and, and there's, you know, there's all the the caricatures and Facebook becoming meta and, you know, the NFT boom. And, and that's, that's fine. That that's, it's not noise. It's, it's significant. I don't mean to diminish it, but I think um, at its core, the NFT revolution really did give us a glimpse of the future, right? And this, this integration between DAOs and NFTs and identity and, and community is a really important thing to understand. Um, 
this this concept which started with bitcoin of self-sovereignty your, your ability to control your life a different way which is very foreign it sounds it sounds way in the clouds to someone who's you know maybe not a millennial or a gen z but it's really it's really what this generation cares about um I think that's what this is all about. I think it's about uh, how do I how do I bring myself digitally and physically to the world every day and engage with my community and have that be authentic and mine. And I think that's a re- that's a reflection whether whether people know this or not. I think they are reacting to this subconscious feeling of generational theft. Mm. I really feel that post the financial crisis, it comes back to the point I made earlier, whether it's the the debt load that's being put on top of, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who are under 35, um, whether it's the environment, um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why this generation is just saying, you know what, we're going to do it this way. Right. And I think that that whole metaverse and, and web 3.0 social media uh, uh, identity discussion really starts there. Gosh, that's such a fascinating insight, you know, particularly because folks who are running books of fixed income portfolios, for example, don't think in those philosophical terms because they don't have to. You're talking about a really core philosophical shift in the way that people view themselves and their role in society. Uh, you know, and also to talk about millennials and Gen Z, uh, this idea of uh, not just the big banks, but also big web 2.0 tech companies being disintermediated in this web 3.0 environment. That that's why this is so. I mean, this is all about um, the, the the talent that's being thrown. Again, it's almost the, the 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 metaverse theme is almost what we were talking about um, when we started with with Novo and Raul thinking about crypto and not really knowing how it's going to stick, but knowing there's a there there. When you see this many people and this much capital coming out of centralized finance, centralized technology, uh, and really uh, bringing those ideas to the table and a lot of money, $33 billion of venture capital financing just last year uh, in, into this crypto and, and meta space, something's going to come out of that. There's going to be some really cool technology. There's going to be some 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 really cool network-driven uh, communal things that are no longer 100 people, but are a million or 10 million people. Uh, and you've, you've seen the use cases be proven out. You really have. Just like Pokemon Go was a harbinger to AR and VR, I think um, Board Ape Yacht Club is a harbinger to the future of community and 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 social clubs and your your digital identity. So I, I think this is all sort of nebulous and it sounds a little wishy-washy, but to your point, it's very, it's very deeply entrenched with those that engage with it. And and most importantly, it's entrenched in a way that's theirs. If you leave Twitter, your Twitter followers don't come with you. Your messages don't come with you. Why? That makes no sense. You know, it's it's your identity, it's your messages. That should go with you and travel with you wherever you are, uh, digitally or physically. And, and I think that integration um, is going to be really interesting to watch over the next five years. You know, that brings up such a fascinating point, which is the nature of technology is this constant evolution, right? I mean, if you think about the evolution from, I don't know, MySpace to Facebook, right? People look at some of these technologies on the digital asset side, on the Web3 side, and they say, eh, I don't know, I'm not impressed. It looks a little janky. It looks like it's held together with, you know, rigging tape and bubble gum and, and the user interface is terrible. And why would I want to do this? And the reality is, it's just that constant improvement that happens within software and particularly now in the 
open source movement where you have people collaborating from all over the world. It's just such a, yeah, it's, I, well, it's, it's, um, it reminds me. And I think, uh, I was a sophomore when Facebook came out and we were, you know, we were the first, whatever, 10 schools. So maybe I was Facebook user 5,000 or something like that. And it was a terrible interface and no one knew what to do with it. You said photos of people and you looked, you looked at everyone and you friended them, but, but who, who knew what exactly that meant? And then, you know, here we are, uh, today with, with Facebook, right. what it is. Um, I, I think that the, the aha moment for most people is going to be when they actually engage with something that's called Web3, right? When, when, I, when I got an, uh, an ENS domain name and I was able to then log in without any, any username or password, you, you just go to a website and you're logged in and it knows that you're you and, and the website's just the front end. It doesn't hold, hold all of your information or uh, really care about that. You just are who you are wherever you go yeah. digitally. Even as someone in the space who, who knew this conceptually, it was amazing. You almost say, wait a minute, how am I logged in? What does it know that? I, and it's, it's like, no, no, this is how this works. Yeah. It's a better back end. Right. And so once people do that once or twice themselves, I think there's this, and for everyone, it's different. You, you buy an NFT. In my case, it was a pudgy penguin because my daughter loves penguins and she's <laughs> two and she was very happy about it. And like everyone finds their thing and then, and then that pulls them in and they learn more that way. So I think that's going to happen um, at an increasing rate. You know, one of the interesting things about being Facebook user 5000 is you get bragging rights. You don't, you don't <laughs> get an economic interest in the network. I remember when the ENS coin drop came out. Um, the day that it came out, I got invited to one of these like fancy New York finance dinner parties that I get an invitation to like <laughs> once a year. And I'm yep. there and we're having cocktails and there are a bunch of really sophisticated financial people, people on the fund side, people who work at like the really high-end financial publications. And I'm explaining to them this concept of a coin drop that someone just dropped $8,000 worth of tokens uh, into, my, <laughs> into my Ethereum wallet. And they looked at me like I'd just fallen off the turnip truck. Like, boy, you are so naive. I can't believe you don't understand the way finance works. And it was such a frustrating experience because you wanted to say, no, it's you guys who don't understand where the ship is going, but you couldn't, right? And it's a very hard concept to explain to people. Uh, and, you know, look, I registered ENS not because I wanted uh, my uh, my name as, a, as an ENS domain, not because I was hoping for a coin drop, but because I thought it'd be cool to be able to have ashbennington.eth, right? And that's the difference. And it, and, and, it, and it is cool. And and, and the, th the problem with the old way of thinking, right, is that it is – it's it's actually it's like you shine it's like you put a mirror up um to the people that fancy themselves to be free market capitalists and they don't even understand how of the system they've become the, right. everything you're describing is about unlocking more potential. It's not a zero sum game. Yeah. If you give away ENS tokens, that's going to continue to build the network and the community. It will validate people who already think it's cool to, to spread the word. And, and, and that's like, that's a core concept for some of these. Now there's a, there's the other side of that. You have to be careful and make sure that these aren't all Ponzi schemes. They have to have right. a use case to them. But I think that this, this idea of the, the drop is really complicated for people in finance in particular. They just, they can't help but think that it's, uh, uh, it's a trick of some kind. <laughs> yeah, the consensus was that I was coin dropped these coins uh, just so that I would cover it in Real Vision, and that no one else got them, just a handful <laughs> of journalists. I mean, it's, it sounds so silly, but... Uh, I can assure you that's not true. You can prove that on the blockchain to be untrue. <laughs> yeah, they were not going to go home and open up a block explorer and take a look, right? <laughs> yep. Steve, amazing conversation. Great having you back. Great hearing more about your story, uh, about your thoughts for the future. As we leave this conversation, final thoughts, key takeaways for our listeners. Well, it's hard not to be, again, philosophical about 
where we are. Um, you know, we're the last 30 years of dream where you had Pax Americana and one one way bond yields and <laughs> you know limited wars and the internet boom. I mean, I I don't I don't know where all this goes, but I, I do feel that um, you know, the world on the other side of this this conflict that's horrible that we're seeing now um is is going to be different again. And the world after the pandemic is different. And 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 crypto is is a is a maybe not a panacea, but it's it's part of it's part of that future world. If we've weaponized money, um, you know, in, in a war context or in a Canadian context with truckers, and right. what does that really mean over time? I, you know, Bitcoin has a role in some of that. Uh, better payment rails and frictionless payment has has a role in that. Um, so I, I think uh, I, I'm spending a lot of time trying to think about um, where where all of this lands in the context of these. Warp speed changes to the geopolitical order in the last couple of weeks, um, and I, you know m- maybe sometime we can talk about that uh, in more detail. Steve, next time it's geopolitics and the disintermediation of the global SWIFT system. I can't wait. I look forward to it. <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for joining us again. Awesome. Thanks, Ash. All right, that's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues.